0: Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. In this episode, the issue we are analyzing is how did the United States become embroiled in the quagmire of the Vietnam War? For most people outside of Asia, when you mention Vietnam, they think of one thing, what Americans call the Vietnam War. That's essentially the war from 1964 through 1973. Although in Vietnam, they call that the American War. The story of the Vietnam War usually starts with President John Kennedy being assassinated in Dallas and Lyndon Johnson takes over as president and gets the U.S. into a long, unwinnable war. Most people never look into what happened before that time. They never think about why was Vietnam split into two countries of North Vietnam and South Vietnam. Why were there communists in the North trying to take over the South? In this episode, we're going to explore those issues. Vietnam has a long history, but for today's purposes, we're going to start in 1858. That's when the French first invaded Southeast Asia to create a colony there. This was still the heyday of European colonialism. Starting with the days of Christopher Columbus in the late 1400s, Europeans felt entitled to subjugate foreign lands and peoples as colonies. So in the middle to late 1800s, France established the colony of Indochina. That colony covered the area which is now the three modern countries of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The local peoples did not want to be under French rule. They wanted independence. This was expressed in a formal sense in 1919. On November 11, 1918, the fighting stopped in World War I. After the armistice, there was a meeting in Paris to work out all of the details of the peace treaty between the Western Allies and Germany. And for those of you who think I got the wrong city, all of the negotiations were held in Paris. The treaty was only signed in Versailles, and that's why it's called the Versailles Treaty. The peace conference would not be finalized, and the treaty signed until June 1919. Leading the American delegation was President Woodrow Wilson. While the war was still going on, in an address to Congress on February 11, 1918, President Wilson said the following Peoples are not to be handed about from one sovereignty to another by an international conference or an understanding between rivals and antagonists. National aspirations must be respected. Peoples may now be dominated and governed only by their own consent. Self-determination is not a mere phrase. It is an imperative principle of action, which statesmen will henceforth ignore at their peril. One person who took Wilson at his word was a young man from the part of French Indochina that would later become Vietnam. This man was known by many aliases throughout his life, but he's mostly recognized by the last alias he adopted, Ho Chi Minh. And even though he was not known as Ho Chi Minh in 1919, to make things easier, I'm just going to refer to him by that name. In 1919, Ho Chi Minh went to Paris to seek independence for the Vietnamese people. Ho Chi Minh submitted a written letter dated June 18, 1919. The letter was addressed to the American Secretary of State Robert Lansing and was written in French. The cover letter was short and read in total as follows. To His Excellency, the Secretary of State of the Republic of the United States, Delegate to the Peace Conference. Excellency, we take the liberty of submitting to you the accompanying memorandum, setting forth the claims of the Vietnamese people on the occasion of the Allied victory. We count on your great kindness to honor our appeal by your support whenever the opportunity arises. We beg Your Excellency graciously to accept the expression of our profound respect. The cover letter was addressed to the U.S. Secretary of State. The accompanying page was a copy of the requests sent to the French government on behalf of the Vietnamese people. The requests were that the Vietnamese be given the same rights that the French had, such as freedom of the press, freedom of speech, etc. As far as we know, President Wilson never saw the letter. But even if Wilson had seen it, it wouldn't have mattered. What Ho Chi Minh did not understand was that Wilson... Was serious about self determination, but only for Europeans. This was a white person's only policy. Wilson thought that the people who had been part of the Austro Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, and the Russian Empire should have their own countries. After World War I, Europe had the following countries which had not existed when World War I began in 1914. Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Yugoslavia, Austria, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. Of course, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia no longer exist as intact countries. By the way, Poland was not exactly a brand new country. Poland had been a country up until 1795, when its three aggressive neighbors, Russia, Austria and Prussia, which essentially would later unite with other states to become Germany, agreed to partition Poland among the three of them. Think about that. The Russians, Austrians, and Prussians didn't want to fight each other over Poland, so they simply agreed to divide Poland three ways. As a result, Poland did not exist for 123 years, but was recreated after World War I. Anyway, Getting back to Ho Chi Minh, even if Woodrow Wilson received the petition from Ho, there's another reason he would not have acted on it. Wilson was not going to fight with Britain and France about their enormous colonial empires. And I'd like to point out, that the letter Ho Chi Minh submitted at Paris sounded very nice with high ideals like freedom of press and speech, freedom of association and assembly, etc. But when Ho Chi Minh came to power and set up a communist government in North Vietnam, none of those freedoms existed. So, Indochina continued as a French colony until World War II. On May 10, 1940, Nazi Germany invaded France. Even though France was a world power at that time, and the British were fighting alongside the French military, the Nazis defeated the French very quickly. The French signed an armistice agreement with Germany on June 22, 1940. When the Nazis occupied Poland, Czechoslovakia, or Austria, it was terrible for the peoples of those countries. But it did not shake up the world order. But because of the vast colonial empire of France, the occupation of approximately half of France changed the balance of power throughout the world. Starting with the French surrender in June 1940, what was the status of the French colonies? Officially, they were still under French control. As part of the French surrender, the Nazis set up a puppet state of the southeastern part of France. Since this figurehead government of France operated out of the city of Vichy, this puppet state was known as Vichy France. Officially, all those French colonies in Africa, Asia, and the various islands throughout the world were governed by Vichy France. Although supposedly independent, Vichy France did whatever the Germans told them to do. The French situation provided a wonderful opportunity for the Japanese in World War II. Starting in the summer of 1940, the Japanese set up bases in French Indochina. During the later parts of World War II, the U.S. was providing assistance to a guerrilla force led by Ho Chi Minh against the Japanese. That usually blows people's minds when they find out that the U.S. was assisting Ho Chi Minh during World War II. It was a classic case of the maxim, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In March 1945, the Japanese decided to end any French rule and simply imprison the French officials in Indochina. The Japanese were now governing Indochina without any interference by the French. Of course, this didn't last very long because the Japanese surrendered to the Allies in August 1945. On September 2, 1945, at a rally in Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh declared the birth of the independent country of Vietnam. Ho read the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence. He said to the crowd, All people are created equal. They are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yes, Ho Chi Minh actually quoted Thomas Jefferson the primary author of the American Declaration of Independence. You could see why Ho thought that the time for Vietnamese independence had arrived. The French had been pushed out by the Japanese, and now the Japanese Empire was defeated. And throughout World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt had made it clear to the French and the British that it was not an American war aim to reestablish French and British colonies after the war. But FDR died on April 12, 1945. Harry Truman was now president. It's not that Harry Truman was a big fan of the British or French empires, but by September 1945, Truman had determined that the biggest problem facing the United States was the USSR. Throughout World War II, the Soviet Union had been allies with the Americans, British, Canadians, Australians, and New Zealanders. But when Nazi Germany surrendered in May 1945, The Cold War began almost immediately. Although the term Iron Curtain was not coined until Winston Churchill used that memorable phrase in a speech on March 5, 1946, at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, the Iron Curtain was already in place by the summer of 1945. This meant a separation of Europe into two camps— Western Europe was essentially free and democratic. But behind the Iron Curtain, the Eastern European countries were occupied by the Red Army and the Soviets were imposing their will. And the Soviet will was never good for the occupied peoples. This was at a time when Joseph Stalin was the brutal dictator of the USSR. The Soviets installed harsh totalitarian governments in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and what became the new country of East Germany. Truman and the American government saw the biggest threat to world peace being the expansion of Soviet influence by creating additional communist countries. After World War II, Vietnam was temporarily occupied by the British in the southern part of the country and the Chinese nationalist forces in the northern part of the country. China was involved in a civil war between the nationalist forces led by Chiang kai shek and the communist forces led by Mao Zedong, usually just referred to as Chairman Mao. The British and Chinese were in Vietnam simply to accept the surrender of the Japanese forces there. The French wanted their colony back. Of course, the British were all for the French reclaiming Indochina. The British wanted to keep control of their empire. The British would have a lot less trouble from the Americans regarding their colonies if France was doing the same thing. After World War II, the U.S. was not concerned about Southeast Asia or any of the other colonial areas dominated by the British or the French the Truman administration had its hands full dealing with the Soviets. As the French tried to reassert control in Indochina, they were opposed by the independence movement led by Ho Chi Minh. This group was called the Viet Minh. In late 1946, full-scale war broke out between the Viet Minh and the French. The French took control of the cities, including Hanoi, which had been the home base for Ho Chi Minh. The Viet Minh fled to the mountains in the countryside. Before going forward with the narrative, let's look into the Viet Minh. Contrary to the wonderful language Ho Chi Minh adopted from the U.S. Declaration of Independence, Ho and his organization were communists. Nowadays, some people look back at cold warriors of the West meaning the U.S. and its allies, and make fun of them for talking about the communists as these evil boogeymen. But they were. Communist regimes in the 20th century were brutal, totalitarian. The entire history of the USSR from the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 until the fall of the USSR in 1991 was one big horror show. And the Soviet Union was certainly at its worst during the merciless dictatorship of Joseph Stalin from the mid to late 1920s until his death in March 1953. Unfortunately, there is no consensus for how many deaths are attributable to Joseph Stalin. Estimates range from 9 million to 20 million Soviet citizens died as a result of Stalin. These include outright executions, people being worked to death in the Gulag prison camps, and possibly the worst was the man-made famine in Ukraine known as the Holodomor. And it wasn't just the Soviet Union that was evil. The communist regimes set up in Eastern Europe were also repressive police states. People were not allowed to leave and there were no individual freedoms. The communist countries of Eastern Europe were totalitarian states kept in power by secret police forces that spied on their own people as well as imprisoned their citizens or simply killed them often without trial. And starting in 1949, when the communists took over in China, millions of people were killed there. During the brutal reign of Chairman Mao, an estimated 40 to 80 million Chinese citizens died as a result of man-made famine, disease, as well as torture and execution. Again, that's an incredibly broad range But whatever the actual number of deaths caused by the policies of Chairman Mao, it was one of the greatest horrors in the history of the world. So what was the appeal of Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh? Why would anybody embrace communism? You have to consider the times and the situation. If somebody proposes a communist form of government today in countries like the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, or South Korea, they're not going to get many adherents because these functioning capitalist democracies are overall very appealing to the majority. But when somebody was proposing a communist government to replace a foreign colonial power, it might seem attractive. What Ho Chi Minh was offering was independence. Let's get the French out of here. Let's have Vietnam governed by the Vietnamese. Today we look at the brutal communist states of the 20th century, or North Korea today, and we see the loss of freedoms. But the people in Vietnam in the late 1940s were not going to be giving up many freedoms. They're a colony being governed from Paris. And what about the economics? As history has shown, when people are given a free choice between a capitalist system and a communist system, they choose the capitalist system. But the people in Vietnam were not controlling their own economy. 80% of the population of Vietnam were peasants living in the countryside. What were they giving up? They were already poor and starving. And here comes Ho Chi Minh, promising this economic paradise where everybody would be equal and nobody would go hungry. You could see why this had appeal in a situation like Vietnam when it was still part of the colony of Indochina. Think of the audacity on the part of the French. In May and June of 1940, they were easily conquered by Nazi Germany. They remained occupied by the Germans until they were liberated by the Americans, British and Canadians in the summer of 1944 after the D-Day invasion. You would think that those four years of Nazi occupation would make them sympathetic to other conquered peoples. But no! As soon as France was freed from the German occupation, they wanted to go right back to suppressing others, Like the people of Southeast Asia. The war between the French and the Viet Minh was not a conventional war. This was a guerrilla war. The Viet Minh attacked French outposts and government installations, and then would disappear. The Vietnamese rebels would disperse into the general population. How could the French win when they didn't know who they were fighting? The French tried to win over the hearts and minds of the people through a program of pacification. The French thought that if they built infrastructure, like roads and canals, that they could be accepted by the Vietnamese. But the French did not understand that the main thing the Vietnamese wanted was independence, not material things that a Western European country could provide. The French-Indochina War, which began in 1946, got much worse in 1949. 1949 had been a very bad year for the Western democracies, including the U.S. and France. As I mentioned earlier, there was a civil war in China. Unfortunately for the Chinese people, Chairman Mao and his communists were successful. Mao declared the founding of the People's Republic of China on October 1, 1949 in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. The largest nation in the world by population at that time now joined the Soviet Union, the largest country by area, as communist behemoths. There was even worse news on the nuclear front Since the summer of 1945, the US had enjoyed a nuclear monopoly. America was the only country in the world with atomic weapons. That changed on August 29, 1949, when the USSR exploded an atomic bomb. This meant that any war between the United States and the Soviet Union would probably involve a nuclear exchange, meaning that there could be no winners everybody would be a loser. This international situation led to a world dominated by two camps, the communist world versus the free world, also known as the West. It was us against them. As a result, the United States was going to support its ally, France, despite all of America's anti-colonial ideals. Things got even worse in 1950. Following the Japanese surrender in August 1945, which ended World War II, the nation of Korea, which had been under Japanese occupation, was occupied by the Soviet Union and the United States. It was agreed between the Soviets and the Americans that the demarcation of the occupation zones would be the 38th parallel, which essentially divided the country in half. The division and occupation of Korea was supposed to be for five years with a reunification under one government by 1950. This didn't happen. By 1950, there were two governments in Korea. A communist government was set up in the north and a capitalist democratic regime was set up in the south. On June 25, 1950, Communist North Korean troops poured over the 38th parallel into South Korea. This terrible war dragged on for three years and ended in a stalemate. In July 1953, an armistice was reached, and today we still have a divided Korean peninsula with Communist North Korea and Democratic South Korea. If you'd like to hear more about the Korean War, I did an episode entitled, The Cold War Heats Up in Korea. After years of fighting, a conference was scheduled in Geneva, Switzerland, to try to find a resolution to the crisis in Indochina. The Geneva Conference began in April 1954. There were representatives from France and the Viet Minh, as well as the Soviet Union, the U.S., China, and the U.K. The French and the Viet Minh were trying to strengthen their military positions before a resolution was reached in Geneva. To assert their authority throughout all of Vietnam, the French established military outposts. The French had built a large military base in the northwestern part of Vietnam near the current border of Laos. This was in a place called Dien Bien Phu. The French thought that they had built an impregnable outpost at Dien Bien Phu. The idea was to invite a battle from the Vietnamese and destroy them there. Or, if the Viet Minh refused to attack them at the Bien Phu, this would theoretically demonstrate to the world that the French were too powerful and the local insurgents were afraid to attack them. The French could not have been more wrong. Instead of their usual guerrilla tactics, the Viet Minh battled the French in conventional warfare. The French garrison at the Bien Phu was located in a valley. The French did not believe that the Viet Minh could get artillery up the steep surrounding hills. In an amazing feat of coordination and willpower, the Viet Minh hauled many artillery pieces into the surrounding hills. The cannons were disassembled and the parts and ammunition were carried by hand small carts. Once the big guns were reassembled, the batteries were hidden so well in the dense trees and foliage that the French were unable to find them. The Battle of Dien Bien Phu started on March 13, 1954. The well-placed and well-hidden artillery of the communist forces dominated the area because they were located on the high ground. The Viet Minh artillery decimated the French positions in the valley below. In addition, the Communists attacked the French forces with ground troops. By May 7, 1954, the remnants of the French forces surrendered. Before the surrender, the leaders of France had contacted the United States to ask for military assistance. Up until this time, the Eisenhower administration had been willing to provide France with military supplies, and to pay most of the expenses. By 1954, the U.S. was paying 80% of the French monetary costs of the war in Vietnam. But President Eisenhower and the American Congress had no desire to send American troops to Vietnam to assist the French. This was less than a year after the end of the Korean War. There was no appetite among the American government or public to get into another land war in Asia. Spoiler... Those attitudes will change in the 1960s. The French defeat at the NBN Phu was a disaster militarily and on the home front. French citizens had grown weary of this war and wanted out. Although there were still plenty of French forces in Vietnam, it was obvious to both the French and the Vietnamese that France had had enough and was willing to give up trying to reestablish Indochina as a colony. Negotiations were proceeding in Geneva, Switzerland. There were two sets of negotiations going on at that time in Geneva dealing with two separate issues. One issue was a resolution of outstanding disputes in Korea. An armistice had been reached in 1953, but there were many issues that were not settled. There was no agreement in Geneva 1954 regarding Korea, and many issues between North Korea and South Korea are still unresolved today. The other set of negotiations were more successful. These were the discussions regarding French Indochina. The U.S. had representatives there, but did not participate in the negotiations. The agreement reached included the following provisions. Number one, French Indochina was divided into three new countries, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Number two, Vietnam would be temporarily split into two countries, South Vietnam, which was officially called the Republic of Vietnam, with its capital in Saigon, and North Vietnam, which was officially called the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, with its capital in Hanoi. By the way, I love how those communist countries always like to call themselves democratic republics. There were certainly not democracies nor republics in any stretch of the imagination. Vietnam was split along the 17th parallel with a five-kilometer demilitarized zone separating the two countries. Number three. The division of Vietnam was supposed to be temporary. In two years time, meaning 1956, a referendum would be held. Essentially, the people of Vietnam would elect which type of government they wanted, a democratic capitalist system or a communist system, for a reunited country. Number 4. For a period of 300 days, people could freely move from either North Vietnam to South Vietnam or vice versa. So if you wanted to live in a communist country, you could go to North Vietnam. If you wanted to live in a democratic country, you could go to South Vietnam. No surprise, most of the movement was from North to the South. Approximately 1 million people moved from North Vietnam to South Vietnam. A large percentage of these people were Catholics who presumed that they would be persecuted by the communists. The United States paid a lot of the cost for people to move from the north to the south and even used American naval ships To ferry refugees. There were some people that moved from the south to the north, but it was a much smaller number, possibly just over 100,000 people. Number five, the French were allowed to remain in South Vietnam. It didn't matter. France removed the last of its soldiers from Vietnam by the end of April 1956. When Americans study the Vietnam War, it always starts with this divided country of a communist North Vietnam and a democratic South Vietnam. All of the events I just outlined for you is how the stage was set in Vietnam before the Americans really got involved. As I told you, one of the provisions of the Geneva agreement was that there would be an election in 1956 to choose a form of government for a united Vietnam. I'm sure you will not be surprised that no election occurred. There was no way that the South Vietnamese were going to participate in such an election. It was clear that Ho Chi Minh and the Communists would easily win. Why's that? Well, a few factors. Number one, there was never going to be a free election in North Vietnam. Communist countries are not known for their free and fair elections. Number two, there were more people in North Vietnam. So even if there was a fair election, the communists would easily have won. Number three, even with the exchange of peoples between North and South when the country was split at the 17th parallel, there were still plenty of communist sympathizers in South Vietnam. Number four, the South Vietnamese government was corrupt and not doing much for its own people and was not very popular. Don't get me wrong, a majority of people in South Vietnam did not want a communist regime, but they were not that fond of their current government either. Of course... Any elections involving communists is a no-win situation. If the democratic parties win, there will continue to be elections. But if the communists ever win just once, there will never be another election. The government of North Vietnam is easy to summarize. It was a communist regime headed by Ho Chi Minh. But what about South Vietnam? The government started with an emperor named Bao Dai. It's a long and complicated story, but the pertinent points are that Bao Dai was the last emperor in Vietnam. When Vietnam was part of the French colony of Indochina, Bao Dai was the emperor, but had to answer to the French colonial authorities. Bao Dai continued as the nominal emperor during the Japanese occupation of World War II. Bao Dai abdicated at the end of World War II when Ho Chi Minh declared Vietnam an independent country. By 1949... Bao Dai was reinstated as the titular emperor under control of the French who had returned after World War II. So when the country was partitioned between North and South, Bao Dai was the emperor of South Vietnam. By 1955, Bao Dai was completely removed from power. He was replaced by Ngo Dinh Diem. In 1955, an election was held in and Ziem became the first president of the independent country of South Vietnam. No Din Ziem is usually just referred to by that third name, which is spelled D-I-E-M. Reading that name, I always thought it was pronounced D M, but after listening to many experts on Vietnam, apparently it was pronounced Ziem. so that's the way I will pronounce it. Ho Chi Minh and his communist forces were not happy with the Geneva Accords. They wanted to continue fighting until they got a unified Vietnam under a communist government from Hanoi. But the two countries that were backing the communist insurgency, the Soviet Union and China, forced the Viet Minh to accept the settlement. The Soviets and Chinese had different reasons. Joseph Stalin had died on March 5, 1953. The new Soviet government, which was eventually led by Nikita Khrushchev, was trying to roll back the worst abuses that had ruled the USSR since the late 1920s under Stalin. And Khrushchev wanted to ease tensions somewhat with the US and the Western democracies. This change in leadership in Moscow is the main reason why an armistice was reached in the Korean War. The Chinese were still a lot more militant. The government in Beijing was still promoting worldwide communist revolution and fighting with the West. However, the Chinese Civil War had just ended in the fall of 1949. And then, the Chinese were active participants in the Korean War. In short, China needed a break from warfare to try to rebuild its country and its economy. Although they agreed to the terms of the Geneva Settlement, the Viet Minh were not going to stay quiet for long. The Communists built up their government and their military in North Vietnam. As I mentioned earlier, there were still communist insurgents in the newly formed South Vietnam. Let's take a moment to go over the competing military forces that will be in conflict until 1975 when Vietnam is reunited under the communist government in Hanoi. The South Vietnamese Army was known as the ARVN. That's an acronym for A-R-V-N meaning the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. Remember that the Republic of Vietnam was the official name for what everybody simply called South Vietnam. Then there was the NVA, meaning the North Vietnamese Army. Lastly, there were the communist guerrilla fighters in South Vietnam. Their official name was the National Liberation Front, but essentially, everybody just called them the Viet Cong. Americans always referred to the communist guerrillas as Viet Cong. Sometimes they were called V.C. for short. This is where they got that nickname Charlie. If you have watched any Vietnam movies, American soldiers are always talking about Charlie. That nickname for the Viet Cong comes from the military alphabet. The military, along with airlines and some other businesses, use the military alphabet that assigns a word to each letter. A is Alpha, B is Bravo, C is Charlie, and so on. The word assigned for V is Victor. So American military forces sometimes refer to the Viet Cong as Victor Charlies, which eventually became shortened, to Charlie. With the French gone, the U.S. began financially supporting the government of South Vietnam. President Eisenhower did not want to send American military personnel to South Vietnam, but Eisenhower was more than willing to support the South Vietnamese government with the greatest weapon the United States had, American dollars. Now it's time to look into why America got involved in Vietnam, and why did several presidential administrations all care about this tiny country on the other side of the world. This is where we get into the domino theory. Although he did not invent this geopolitical theory, President Eisenhower is the person that popularized the term. In the spring of 1954, when it was clear that the French days in Vietnam were coming to an end, Eisenhower gave a press conference. In that April 7, 1954 press conference, Eisenhower was asked about the strategic importance of Indochina to the free world. I could not find the audio from that press conference, so here is the pertinent quote. Eisenhower cited the broader considerations that might follow what you would call the falling domino principle. You have a row of dominoes set up, you knock over the first one, and what will happen to the last one is the certainty that it will go over very quickly. So you could have a beginning of a disintegration that would have the most profound influences. Eisenhower was stating that if Vietnam fell to communism, that other Asian countries would follow. That's the quote that made the domino theory a popular term throughout the U.S. Eisenhower gave that press conference exactly one month before the French surrendered at the NBN Fu. Nowadays, so many people look back to the early Cold War and mock the domino theory. But are they right to make fun of it? In his 1905 five-volume book, The Life of Reason, writer and philosopher George Santayana wrote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. As somebody who has a degree in history and loves the subject, as is evidenced by this podcast, I fully embrace Santayana's sentiments. The problem is that sometimes people deduced the wrong lessons from the past. That was the case with the domino theory. This ideology stemmed from World War II. Most Western politicians and military people thought that World War II taught us that unchecked aggression will only be much harder to stop down the road. You have to stop an expansionist enemy early on. The example they all pointed to was the Munich Agreement in the fall of 1938. By that time, Hitler and the Third Reich had already annexed Austria. Hitler was now demanding a part of Czechoslovakia that had a majority of citizens of German descent known as the Sudetenland. In a conference in Munich, Germany at the end of September 1938, Britain and France signed an agreement with a Nazi leader that said Hitler could annex the Sudetenland based on his promise that he would not demand any further territory in Europe. Of course, if you know anything about Adolf Hitler, you know that his word meant absolutely nothing and that the Nazis essentially took control of the rest of Czechoslovakia in the spring of 1939. And then... Hitler demanded parts of Poland, and this led to World War II. By the way, I did an episode in favor of the British Prime Minister in the whole Munich crisis entitled A Defense of Neville Chamberlain. Anyway, the theory after World War II was that if the Western democracies had stood up to Hitler during the Sudetenland crisis, he would have been easier to defeat. The common phrase that people would say was that they should have stopped Hitler at Munich. This is why American leaders after World War II thought that they needed to check communist aggression in its early stages. America and its allies needed to stop the communists from acquiring more and more countries. Otherwise, the communists would take over most of the world. The problem with the domino theory, and this entire way of thinking, is that it was not a one-size-fits-all solution. This idea of stopping communism from spreading could work in the right circumstances. By the time that Vietnam was split into North Vietnam and South Vietnam in the summer of 1954, American leaders could point to real life examples of the US and its allies stopping countries from falling to communism. The first examples would be Greece and Turkey. On March 12, 1947, President Harry Truman delivered a speech to a joint session of Congress in which he announced a policy, which became known as the Truman Doctrine, which established that the U.S. would provide political, military, and economic assistance to all democratic nations under the threat from internal or external authoritarian forces, meaning communists. Pursuant to the Truman Doctrine, the U.S. sent $400 million worth of aid to the Greek and Turkish governments, as well as sending civilian and military personnel, along with military equipment, to those two countries. The U.S. saved Greece and Turkey from falling to the communists. Korea was another example of successfully checking communist expansion. And South Korea remains a free and independent country to this day. The point is the policy of stopping communist expansion was a viable policy. It's just that it had to be applied when the circumstances were right. There were two requirements. Number one, there had to be an actual possibility of saving a country from falling to communism. Number two, this could be done without starting World War III and a nuclear holocaust. I think Harry Truman and his administration did a good job of applying these two requirements. They realized that in the cases of Greece, Turkey, and South Korea, there was a good likelihood of preventing a communist takeover and that the Soviet Union would not go to war with the United States over those situations. On the other hand, Truman and his advisors understood that the communist takeover of Eastern Europe was a fait accompli. The enormous Red Army occupied Eastern Europe and the only way to save Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, and East Germany from communism was an all-out war with the USSR. After Truman, Eisenhower also understood these principles. In June 1953, there was an uprising by the people of East Berlin against their communist government. Three years later, in 1956, there was an even larger revolt in Hungary against that communist regime. The people of East Germany and Hungary hoped that the U.S. would intervene, but in both of those situations, the United States did nothing to aid the rebels. Eisenhower and his advisors understood that any interference, whether it be military action or simply supplying war materials, would likely lead to World War III with the Soviet Union. Simply stated, America and her Western allies could not risk a nuclear war over communist Eastern Europe. So why were the American leaders clear-sighted in Eastern Europe but not in Southeast Asia. To be fair to the American decision makers from that time, there were important differences between Eastern Europe and Asia. Eastern Europe had been occupied by the immense Red Army at the end of World War II. Communist governments were set up during the Soviet occupation. Once these communist governments had been established throughout Eastern Europe, the Soviets only had to maintain the status quo. They did not need to overthrow any democratic regimes. The Soviets simply had to keep the communist governments of Eastern Europe in power. This was different than the situations in Korea and Vietnam. When the Korean War started in June 1950, there were already two separate governments with a communist North and a democratic South. Starting in 1954, the same essentially applied to Vietnam. It's easy to see how American political leaders thought they could prevent communist expansion into South Vietnam. The thought was, hey, we just saved South Korea, we should be able to save South Vietnam. However, they weren't seeing key differences between Korea and Vietnam, which were the following. Number one, geography. Korea is a peninsula. The only way for North Korean troops to get to South Korea was an overland invasion. The tiny North Korean Navy cannot ferry troops down the east and west coastlines because of the immense U.S. Navy. But Vietnam is a long, thin country which has a coastline on its eastern side along the South China Sea. But the western side of Vietnam borders the countries of Laos and Cambodia. North Vietnam could send soldiers, guerrillas, and most importantly, supplies of food and military items to South Vietnam along a series of roads through neutral Laos and Cambodia. These routes were collectively known as the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Number two, the governments of North Korea and South Korea were fairly established between the end of World War II and the summer of 1950. The South Korean government was fully functioning and could act as an independent state, the government of South Vietnam was besieged by communist aggression from the time that South Vietnam became independent from the French. As soon as South Vietnam became independent, there were already communist guerrillas, the Viet Cong, operating in South Vietnam. South Korea was not dealing with any organized communist guerrillas in South Korea. Number three, Korea and Vietnam were different types of wars. Korea was a conventional war with the North Korean army invading South Korea. This was traditional fighting with tanks, planes, artillery. The fighting in South Vietnam was mostly guerrilla warfare. The primary danger to the South Vietnamese was not an invasion by the North Vietnamese army. The main threat came from small-scale raids, hit-and-run tactics, by local subversives who were attacking government installations and then would simply disappear back into the local populace. Number four, the biggest difference between Korea and Vietnam is that Ho Chi Minh and the communists portrayed themselves as liberators from foreign oppression. One of the primary arguments by the Communists was that they were striving for an independent and unified Vietnam. First, they were fighting the French, their colonial masters. Then the Communists used this argument against the Americans later on. The Communists claimed that they were fighting for a Vietnam by and for Vietnamese and not being dominated by any outside forces. For decades before and throughout World War II, All of Korea was dominated by Japan. In the summer of 1950, Japan no longer had any influence on the Korean Peninsula. So the Communists could not claim that they were fighting against foreign colonial masters. That argument gave a lot of appeal to the Communists in South Vietnam, but did not apply in South Korea. For all of those reasons I just outlined, the positive outcome in the Korean War was not a basis for U.S. policy in Vietnam. Unfortunately, the people making such decisions in America did not see these differences. Eisenhower showed good judgment in staying out of the revolts against communist Governments in Eastern Europe. But I think that Dwight Eisenhower is often overlooked as somebody responsible for America's tragedy in Vietnam. Don't get me wrong, when ranking the presidents who are most at fault for the American catastrophe in Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson is certainly number one on that list, followed closely by Richard Nixon. And John Kennedy bears some of the blame as well, which I'll discuss in a little bit. But Eisenhower set the stage for everything that followed in American policy. Overall, I think Eisenhower. Eisenhower was a good president, but he got us involved in Vietnam by backing Ngo Dinh Diem as the leader of the South Vietnamese government. Eisenhower decided to back Diem as president, even though the French warned the Americans that he was a terrible choice. Eisenhower also supported Diem's refusal to engage in the 1956 nationwide elections to choose a new form of government. As I explained earlier, Everybody believes that Ho Chi Minh would have easily won that election, and there would have been a communist government throughout all of Vietnam. But Eisenhower went along with Diem's refusal to participate in the nationwide election. This essentially created the separate country of South Vietnam. This was America's chance to get out of Vietnam before the U.S. got too deeply involved. It would have been easy for the U.S. to pull out of Vietnam at that point. Eisenhower could have taken the position that there had been a national election and the Vietnamese people chose a communist government under a reunited country. This would not have been a major event in the Cold War. But once ZM was installed as the president of the new country of South Vietnam, Eisenhower committed the U.S. to fully supporting South Vietnam as an American ally. In other words... This was the beginning of true American involvement. Again, later presidents made things much, much worse. There's blame to go around to Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. And for that matter, there's even blame to go to Harry Truman for supporting the French trying to reconquer Indochina as a colony. We're the United States. We are supposed to be anti-colonial. That's how we started as a country, by kicking out the British. We should not have been backing the French to reestablish their colony. But again, it always came back to Cold War politics. The US would back France or Britain reestablishing colonial control whenever the independence movement was communist. During the Eisenhower presidency, the U.S. poured in money to essentially pay for Diem's war against the communist insurgents. After the partition of the country into North and South, the communists in North Vietnam were trying to build up their country. The same for the Diem government in the South. But the communists who remained in South Vietnam started a guerrilla war against the ZM government. These communist subversives in South Vietnam, the Viet Cong, were trying to overthrow the supposedly democratic government of South Vietnam with the goal of uniting the country under the communist government in Hanoi. Besides sending money. Eisenhower's administration sent military equipment to supply the ARVN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, aka the South Vietnamese Army. Eisenhower also sent in military advisors to teach the ARVN how to fight the guerrillas and how to use the American equipment. There were not a lot of Americans in South Vietnam during the Eisenhower years. By the end of Eisenhower's presidency, there were only approximately 700 American military advisors in South Vietnam. In November 1960, John F. Kennedy narrowly defeated Richard Nixon in one of the closest elections in American history. Would Kennedy act differently in Vietnam from what Eisenhower had been doing? And if so, why? JFK and his advisors were very idealistic they were going to stop the spread of communism throughout the world. We were going to make the world safe for democracy. Kennedy made this clear in his inaugural address on January 20, 1961, when he said, Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, Support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. That idealism soon ran into some harsh realities. The first was the Bay of Pigs. Here is an extremely brief outline of the operation known as the Bay of Pigs. In 1959, Fidel Castro successfully toppled the government of Cuba and set up a communist regime only 90 miles away from Florida. A communist country that close to the United States seemed intolerable. So, under the Eisenhower administration, the CIA came up with a scheme to overthrow Fidel Castro. Cuban expatriates living in the U.S., who were very anti-communist, received military training and equipment from the U.S. government. On April 17, 1961, these anti-Castro Cubans landed in Cuba in a location which name translates into English as Bay of Pigs. The people invading, along with the CIA, thought that such an invasion would trigger a popular uprising throughout Cuba and overthrow Castro and the communists. Spoiler, no. This was a disaster. No uprising occurred. The men who invaded Cuba were either killed or captured. JFK resisted the calls from his military to send American air power to assist the invaders at the Bay of Pigs. Although this plan had originated under the Eisenhower administration, It was implemented after Kennedy had become president and this was a great embarrassment to John Kennedy. The other event which shaped Kennedy's outlook on dealing with the communists was the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. The Soviets installed nuclear missiles in Cuba. This was discovered by American spy planes. This resulted in a diplomatic standoff, which was eventually peacefully resolved with the Soviets agreeing to remove their missiles from Cuba and the Americans pledging not to invade Cuba and also secretly pledging to remove American nuclear missiles from Turkey. The Cuban Missile Crisis was the closest the world ever came to a nuclear exchange and the possible destruction of the world as we know it. I'll refer to these two incidents when assessing Kennedy's policies towards Vietnam. As America was backing the South Vietnamese government, China was providing North Vietnam with military supplies. A lot of those guns, ammunition, and other equipment made their way to the Viet Cong in South Vietnam. It seemed that the South Vietnamese government might not survive. Some of JFK's advisors were recommending that he send combat troops to South Vietnam. Kennedy refused. However, he greatly increased the amount of military hardware sent to South Vietnam. Most importantly, the U.S. was sending a lot of helicopters and armored personnel carriers to transport the ARVN, the South Vietnamese Army, to hot spots around South Vietnam. And although he refused to send in combat troops, Kennedy greatly increased the number of U.S. advisors to the South Vietnamese military. By the end of Kennedy's presidency, The U.S. had approximately 16,000 American military advisors in South Vietnam. Obviously, these are generalizations, but overall, the people in the cities of South Vietnam supported the government. The problem was that approximately 80% of the South Vietnamese lived in the countryside. These were very poor farmers living in small villages. It was in the rural areas that the Viet Cong were thriving. To combat this... The ZM government came up with a plan to protect these villagers from the Viet Cong. It was called the Strategic Hamlet Program. The South Vietnamese government created these fortified villages that were surrounded with barbed wire, ditches, and spiked fences. The idea was that the farmers could live in these barricaded hamlets and be physically safe from the Viet Cong. The program was a total failure. Mostly because the farmers did not like being forced from their homes to have to go live in one of these fortified strategic hamlets. The Americans were also trying to win the hearts and minds of the rural population. On March 1, 1961, President Kennedy signed an executive order establishing the Peace Corps. The idea of the Peace Corps was to send American volunteers to underdeveloped countries to help those countries progress. These volunteers would help in developing education, health programs, and building needed structures like wells and windmills. The Peace Corps and other American volunteers went to South Vietnam, and although they built infrastructure to improve lives and treated diseases with medicines and vaccines, these efforts were not enough to win over the agrarian populations of South Vietnam. People love to argue the what-ifs of history. One of the biggest questions from 20th century America is, what if Kennedy had not been assassinated on November 22, 1963 in Dallas? Would Kennedy have escalated Vietnam into a full-scale war like his successor Lyndon Johnson did. People have been arguing about this since the 1960s. Some take the position that Kennedy would probably have done what LBJ did because of the mindset of American politicians during the Cold War. When Chairman Mao and his communists won the Chinese Civil War in 1949, It caused great consternation throughout the U.S. People wanted to know, who lost China? I always love that question, who lost China? It was really the height of American arrogance that the outcome of a civil war in a country of over 500 million people depended upon actions of the U.S. Immediately after World War II, nobody and I mean nobody, was in favor of committing American military forces into the enormous civil war in China. But it's human nature to want to find scapegoats. Somebody had to be blamed for losing China to communism. The reason I bring this up is because after the Chinese communist victory in 1949, US politicians were afraid of being labeled as guilty for losing a country to communism. In the 1950s and 60s, most If not all, American politicians felt that way. Lyndon Johnson openly told people that he worried about it. Because of these reasons, some argue that Kennedy would have followed essentially the same course as Johnson. Obviously, we will never know for sure. But if I had to guess, I think Kennedy would have gotten the U.S. out of Vietnam for the following reasons. Number one, Kennedy was willing to go against the advice of his military advisors. In April 1961, JFK refused to commit American air forces to the Bay of Pigs invasion. Even more enlightening is the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. Practically all of the military chiefs were recommending that JFK either bomb Cuba to take out the Soviet nuclear missiles, Or invade the island. Kennedy refused to do either. As he explained at the time, he had recently read the book The Guns of August by Barbara Tuchman. By the way, it's an excellent book and I would highly recommend it. In that book, Barbara Tuchman explains how World War I started because of one step leading to another. Once one country did something, the opposing country would counter with a contrasting action. And without even intending it, one step after another led to World War I. Kennedy was worried that the bombing or invasion of Cuba would lead the Soviets to take aggressive action someplace else, possibly West Berlin. And that would lead America to react and eventually the two superpowers would be in a nuclear war. So I think that JFK was good about seeing the big picture. And it seemed that Kennedy understood before other American leaders that Vietnam was probably an unwinnable situation. Number two, Kennedy told his advisors that he wanted to get out of Vietnam but could not do so until after the 1964 election. This has some ring of truth. If Kennedy had completely pulled out of Vietnam before he attempted to be re-elected, the Republicans would have destroyed him for being soft on communism. Presuming he was re-elected, and that's probable considering what a poor candidate Barry Goldwater was in 1964 for the Republicans, JFK could have done as he pleased regarding Vietnam. According to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, on October 2, 1963, Kennedy agreed to removing all American forces by 1965. This was confirmed in a meeting on October 5, 1963. In fact, there was already a plan to remove 1,000 Americans from South Vietnam by the end of 1963. On October 11, 1963, the White House issued NSAM, meaning National Security Action Memorandum, number 263, which confirmed the plan of Robert McNamara to remove all forces by 1965 and to withdraw 1,000 American military personnel by the end of 1963. Of course, those decisions occurred just over a month before Kennedy was assassinated. Number three, Kennedy understood that the South Vietnamese would have to win or lose the war on their own. The U.S. could not win it for them. On September 2, 1963, JFK was interviewed by Walter Cronkite at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. For those of you who have not heard of him, Walter Cronkite was easily the biggest journalist on television and probably in American history. Here's a clip from that interview. I don't think that uh, unless a greater effort is made by the government to win popular support that, that the war can be won out there. In the final analysis, it's their war. They're the ones who have to win it or lose it. We can help them. We can give them equipment. We can send our men out there as advisors, but they have to win it, the people of Vietnam, against the communists. So there you have it. JFK would definitely have withdrawn from Vietnam and the history of the U.S. and the world at large would have been much better. Not necessarily. When Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara was making his recommendations to be out of Vietnam by 1965, it was on the presumption that the government of South Vietnam could stand on its own by that time. As we later discovered, that ended up not being the case. To sum up, nobody knows for certain what JFK would have done. It's my guess that he would not have escalated the war like Lyndon Johnson did and send in American troops because Kennedy understood that that was a recipe for disaster. But we'll never know for sure. Let's get back to things that we do know, meaning things that actually happened. Throughout 1963, South Vietnamese President Ziem was becoming less and less popular. His brother, Ngo Dinh Nhu, ran the secret police, which did not tolerate dissent against the Ziem government. Part of this unpopularity had to do with the fact that Ziem's government was corrupt but a major problem was his religious persecution. Diem was a devout Catholic. The Catholic population in South Vietnam was a distinct minority of around 10% of the population. Approximately three quarters of South Vietnam in the early 1960s considered themselves Buddhists. Considering those numbers, you would think that a leader, such as ZM would tread lightly in dealing with the Buddhist majority, but not so. Things got really bad from May until November 1963. ZM was cracking down on Buddhist organizations. He had Buddhist flags removed from public places. When unarmed civilians protested that policy, nine people were shot by government forces. In one of the most incredible self-sacrifice protests of all time, on June 11, 1963, a Buddhist monk named Thich Quang Duke sat down in a busy intersection in Saigon and set himself on fire. It was a horrifying and remarkable spectacle, seeing this Buddhist monk sitting there while he burned to death. An American photographer named Malcolm Brown had been tipped off that a significant event was going to occur at that location, so he was there and ready with his camera. Malcolm Brown won many awards for his photograph of the monk burning himself to death in protest. More importantly, that photograph was on the front page of newspapers all around the world. For many people, it was the first time they had ever even heard of Vietnam. And the fact that somebody would burn themselves to death in protest led many to question what kind of government was running South Vietnam. Eventually, several Arvin military leaders decided that they had to overthrow Ziem. The generals contacted the CIA in Saigon and asked the U.S. government if the Kennedy administration would object. Eventually, JFK gave his approval. The U.S. would not sponsor a coup, but would not object to one either. On November 1, 1963, President Diem and his brother, No Dinh Nu were both assassinated in a coup d'etat by the South Vietnamese generals. If the U.S. hoped that this would lead to a more democratic form of government, it did not. After Diem was assassinated, there was sort of a revolving door of military strongmen deposing each other. Of course, Kennedy would not deal with this because he was assassinated exactly three weeks after Diem. On November 22, 1963, When Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, became president of the United States. LBJ not only served out the remainder of Kennedy's term of office, but in November 1964, Johnson was elected in his own right in one of the greatest landslides in American history. Under Johnson, the U.S. policy towards Vietnam would change drastically. LBJ would greatly escalate the war by sending in American combat troops. His Vietnam policies would eventually end his presidency in disgrace. And it's such a shame. If not for Vietnam, Johnson would go down as one of America's most successful presidents. And I know what you're thinking. That's a giant if. I agree. But... If not for Vietnam, Johnson would be known as the president who did more for civil rights than any president since Abraham Lincoln. Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Johnson also passed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which prohibited states from imposing qualifications or practices to deny the right to vote on account of race. Kennedy was in favor of such policies, but he never would have gotten those two laws through Congress. From his days as Senate Majority Leader, Johnson knew how to get laws passed. And the fact that he was from Texas, a southern state, helped LBJ in his negotiations with the powerful southern Democrats who were opposing any civil rights legislation. And it wasn't just civil rights. In his five years as president, LBJ passed many laws to create what he called the Great Society. In addition to the long overdue civil rights laws, Johnson was responsible for Medicare and Medicaid, food stamps, urban renewal, Head Start, a federal program promoting school readiness for children from low-income families, college financial aid, and the first broad federal investment in elementary and high schools. During the Johnson presidency, the percentage of Americans living below the poverty line declined from 20% to 12%. But despite his achievements in aiding the poor and minorities, Johnson is mostly remembered as the chief architect of America's disastrous Vietnam policies. Under the United States Constitution, the president cannot simply declare war upon an enemy. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution reads in pertinent part as follows the Congress shall have power to declare war, grant letters of marque and reprisal, and make rules concerning captures on land and water. And although the U.S. was involved in an actual war in Vietnam from 1964 until 1973, Congress never declared war against North Vietnam or the Viet Cong or anybody in Southeast Asia. So how did Johnson have the authority to do what he did in Vietnam? It's because of one real incident and one phantom incident in August 1964 in the Gulf of Tonkin. If you look at a map, Vietnam is a long, narrow country with its eastern side along the water. Most of the coastline is along the South China Sea, but the northern part of Vietnam is along the Gulf of Tonkin, where, in August of 1964, ships from the South Vietnamese Navy were shelling coastal sections of North Vietnam. American ships were not involved in the shelling, but were in the area to monitor what was going on and sometimes to conduct reconnaissance. On August 2, 1964, three North Vietnamese torpedo boats launched torpedoes at an American destroyer, the USS Maddox. The Maddox fired guns at the North Vietnamese torpedo boats. The Maddox was unscathed, but all three North Vietnamese torpedo boats were damaged by shells from the Maddox, as well as attacks from four jets launched from the aircraft carrier USS ticonderoga this was reported to the american military command and the information reached president johnson and his staff they decided not to take any action against north vietnam at that point but two days later on august 4 1964 the same american destroyer the uss maddox was in the Gulf of Tonkin with another American destroyer, the USS Turner Joy. Weather conditions were terrible. Thunderstorms and rain squalls reduced visibility. Radar men on the Maddox thought that they had been attacked by North Vietnamese torpedo boats. So, both American destroyers fired back. At some point, the captains of the American ships concluded that there might not be anybody actually attacking them. They stopped firing on the supposed enemy positions in the Gulf of Tonkin. They reported the incident as a possible attack by the North Vietnamese. The commanding officer of the USS Maddox, Captain Herrick, determined that the alleged attacks were actually the results of overeager sonar operators and poor equipment performance. Hours later, Captain Maddox sent a dispatch to the Pacific Fleet Commander in Chief in Hawaii, which read Review of action makes many reported contacts and torpedoes fired appear doubtful. Freak weather effects on radar and overeager sonar men may have accounted for many reports. No actual visual sightings by Maddox suggest complete evaluation before any further action taken. Historians now generally agree that there was no attack by communist forces against the American Navy on August 4. This was just a situation of some young sailors making mistakes. But there were some conflicting reports that reached Washington, D.C. that there may have been an attack. LBJ did not wait to clarify the situation. He decided this was the time to retaliate. Johnson asked for congressional approval for retaliation against North Vietnam. On August 7, 1964, Congress passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution authorizing President Johnson to take any measures he believed were necessary for the maintenance of international peace and security in Southeast Asia. The president was given authority to do essentially anything he thought was necessary for as long as he thought it was necessary. LBJ loved how broad the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was. As Johnson so eloquently put it, it's like grandma's nightshirt, it covers everything. As of August 1964, Johnson had a blank check from the United States Congress to wage war without an actual declaration of war against the communist forces in Vietnam or any other enemies that he perceived in Southeast Asia. The story of what happened with the actual American war In Vietnam from 1964 until 1973 is the subject of the second episode in this two-part series, which I hope you'll listen to. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Reviews really help. If you are listening on Spotify or any other podcast apps which allow ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please tell your friends, relatives, and co-workers, check out my website historyanalyze.com. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.